All right, how's everybody doing? You guys are looking especially good today. Well, hey, if I uh, have not met you before, my name is Glenn, Glenn Barnes, one of the pastors here, and uh, uh, excited to share today's message with you. Hopefully when you came in, you received some message notes. Um, You're going to want to pull those out. You want to keep a Bible close by um, because we are going to dig into um, a great scripture here in just a little bit. Um, But before we get to that, I feel like I need to give you just a little public service announcement. I have kind of some important information um, for you all, so are you ready for it? Brace yourself, because here it comes. Christmas is 22 days away. Yes, that's true. So here's the deal. Here's my theory on uh, sharing that little piece of information. My guess is that that creates a variety of different emotions in people, Um, especially if you are a parent or someone like that. Your first response uh, might be that your anxiety level goes up, your blood pressure starts to spike uh, because you think, oh my goodness, uh, Christmas is coming so quickly. How in the world will I ever be ready um, for Christmas? Now, the flip side of that, if you're a kid and you hear Christmas is 22 days away, what do you think? You think, oh my goodness, Christmas is coming so slowly. How in the world am I ever going to wait until Christmas um, gets here? In fact, I have memories of, as a kid of that agonizing wait for Christmas to finally arrive. Now, of course, in my family, maybe like yours, um, to help with that, my family had the obligatory um, family Advent calendar. And so uh, we actually have a picture up here. This was handmade by my mom. Um, And when this baby came out and hung up on the wall, we knew that Christmas was right around the corner and we could start getting excited. And uh, each day, uh, one of my brothers or sister or myself could pull out of that little pocket a little felt character and we could hang it on that felt tree. um, And we just thought that was the greatest thing going. In fact, uh, whatever we drew out, whether it was a, a, a snowman or a toy soldier, whatever it is, we'd hang that on the tree and we were happy about it and we were thankful, right? Um, Now, like everything else, Advent calendars have, of course, evolved and changed through the years. And now, as I look at Advent calendars, I realize, in fact, how traumatized I was um, because now there is so much out there. So, for instance, the, the popular calendar with kids these days is the Lego Star Wars uh, calendar, and you get a, a different toy every day. Can you even imagine that? But you know, here's the deal. It's not just for kids. They have this for adults as well. In fact, I did a little research for you. Uh, Popular advent calendars uh, for adults, you might, for instance, be interested in the 12 days of hot sauce right there kind of countdown until Christmas. Um, or if that's not your thing, I know a lot of people would love the Merry Cheesemas calendar. And so this is a different ch- delicious cheese um, inside every day. Um, and now I'm just kind of hungry to think about that. Um, there's another one that, that's kind of a big seller on the internet these days. That is the 24 days of self-care. So it's different lotions and scrubs and oils and all kinds of things, which is very sweet. Although I was thinking about Mary giving birth in a and I thought, I feel like this one sort of misses the spirit of the season a little bit. Uh, But the most popular one uh, this season uh, across the board, and if you have Swifties in your house, you know this to be true, it is the Taylor Swift Advent Calendar. Yes, that's right, because you can get everything with Taylor Swift. Well, hey, I bring that up because today, as we kick off our brand new series called The Spirit of Christmas, um, we are going to begin with a story of waiting. 
of waiting. And each week between now and the new year, we are going to see some powerful and maybe some surprising ways that the Holy Spirit is actually at work in the lives and in the events uh, of that original Christmas. And we begin today by looking at an often overlooked kind of prelude to Luke's famous Christmas story. And we are going to look at the wonderful characters of Zachariah and Elizabeth. And Zachariah and Elizabeth were two people that knew what it meant to wait. They knew what it meant to wait. In fact, Zechariah was a part of a, a group of people who were devoted specifically to waiting for the Messiah to come. That's right, Zechariah and all the other priests would pray and wait and pray some more and study the scriptures and offer sacrifices, all waiting for the deliverance that people longed for and were waiting for. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, they would say, waiting for the Messiah to come. And yet, whatever they did, people just waited and he never seemed to arrive. So I understand that today, in a powerful way, uh, this story is going to relate to a lot of us because you understand what it means to wait. You understand what it means to watch and to wonder, God, how long can this go on? God, is this ever going to come to an end? Are things ever going to get better? And you look around and you see, you know, God answering other people's prayers and you say, God, what about me? What about my family? God, do you even see me down here as you wait? And if you have ever felt that way in the past, or you may be feeling that way now, then I invite you to open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 1 because we just have a great story um, that we are going to look at um, today. We're going to explore the story of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and the Holy Spirit. And the way we're going to do this is we're going to take it almost like a drama or like a play and we're going to look at it in three different acts or three different scenes. And so here you go. Open your Bibles. Acts 1. The curtain rises to Act 1 and that begins in Luke 1 verses 5 through 7 where we read this. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So Aaron was the the priestly family line. And so Elizabeth was from that family. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old." So right away, in kind of act one of this, we're given some very important details for us to pay attention to. In fact, I think Luke strategically begins this whole section by saying that this takes place in the days of Herod. Now, when he says this takes place in the days of Herod, that is to say that this happened in dark times. You see, Herod was the dictator that was appointed by the Roman Empire to rule over that region of Judea. And Herod not only took this job very seriously, but he ruled over that part of the world with a very cruel and with an iron fist. And so if you were a godly, God-fearing couple, good couple like Zechariah and Elizabeth, you were living in times that were not only dark, but kind of scary and, and oftentimes very violent. And they would have had a strong sense that, that their country, that they loved, was not going in the right direction, but it was actually going in the wrong direction, right? 
Uh, Yet, in the shadow of this crazy tyrant named Herod, they still watched and waited for the Messiah to come. They still kept this hope up and waited for God to move. And in the middle of this waiting, as we said, were the priests. And so Herod, I'm sorry, not Herod, uh, Zechariah, not only himself was a priest, but he was married to Elizabeth, who was from a priestly family. So that's like an A-plus Jewish family. They literally were like a match made in heaven in these two um, families. And not only was it a match made in heaven, but they were this righteous, God-fearing, it actually uses the word blameless couple. Not that they were without sin, but they were, were practicing the law, they were keeping righteous. Yet, in this strange twist of fate, we read that this great Jewish, seemingly perfect Jewish couple, uh, even though they lived a righteous life, still had this strange situation in that they couldn't have kids. They couldn't conceive a child. Now, they lived in a culture where uh, a child was seen as a direct reward from God. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth were just obeying God, and all their friends, slowly but surely, started to have kids, started to get pregnant, one after the other. And they just waited, and they just waited, but it was never their turn. In fact, I can just picture Elizabeth going to every baby shower and being excited for every person, but also just wondering, when is it going to be my time? By the way, I'm actually really grateful that Luke includes, and God through Luke includes this detail that they lived a really righteous life, but they still struggled with childbirth because that's a, that's a common struggle. And I've been with a lot of couples that have, have dealt with that, and it's a very difficult thing. And it's a hard conversation. And one of the most common questions is, what did I do wrong? But what, what's my part? What, what, why is God ignoring us? Why is everybody else? Why, 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 why? And that's a difficult question. But the reality is when someone asks, well, what did I do wrong? You just need to know that that's, that's not the way it, it works, right? The way it works is like this, is we live in a fallen world. When sin entered into mankind and humankind, it, it corrupted all parts of humanity and all parts of creation. And until the new heaven and the new earth comes and things are set right, what we're going to see is bad things happen in this world and bad things happen to seemingly good people. And not only that, but there are some unanswerable, unanswerable things that, that we just can't understand. And one of them um, is that. But so Luke points out that though they were righteous, they could never um, have a child. And the point is that Zechariah and Elizabeth knew the pain of personal disappointment, right? They just felt that disappointment year after year. And I'm sure they got tired of the sympathetic looks and the people whispering behind their backs and the, you know, the backhanded questions that they would get as they knew this personal pain of disappointment. In fact, it reminds me on a much more lighthearted um, way of a, a story a pastor told about this single man in his church. And there was a single guy in his church who was very happy being single, quite content with that. Um, but every time he would go to a wedding at the church, um, there was this little old lady who would come up to him and kind of pat him on the, pat his hand like this. And she would look him in the eye and she would say, don't worry, honey your next, right? And this kept happening to him time and time again. He tried to smile and be polite until finally he kind of had enough. And so one day they were actually at a church funeral and he found that same lady and he went and patted her on the hand and said, 
don't worry, honey, you're next, which seems really rude, and I don't, I don't recommend that, but uh, they, he knew that personal uh, disappointment, and Zachariah and Elizabeth felt that. They felt everybody wondering, when's it going to be their turn? But it wasn't just a personal disappointment. I think Zachariah and Elizabeth also really understood the confusion of what you might call a spiritual disappointment. Because not only were they saying, we're doing things right and it's not going well for us, but Zechariah and the others were waiting for the Messiah to come. And everything they did, whatever they tried, the Messiah, they were waiting for him to come. You see, every Jew knew the promise that went all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So about 2,000 years before Zechariah was on the, the earth, in, in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. And he says this, he says, Abraham, I will make you and your family into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. And here's the problem. Abraham had some good times and he had some people that came after him that were good, but it never really quite got established like that. In fact, a good chunk of those thousand years after Abraham, they, they were slaves in Egypt and then wandering in the wilderness. Well, finally, about a thousand years after Abraham, along comes a guy by the name of David. David becomes the king, and that seems like now things are really going great for the, the nation of Israel and for the Jews. In fact, it's kind of a high time in, in the whole history of the nation. And so first you had the Abrahamic covenant, but now uh, to David you have what's called the Davidic covenant, where God comes along and he makes a promise to, to David about the Messiah as well. And this is what he says in 2 Samuel 7. God says, your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And there was that season uh, after this promise, and then when Solomon built the, the, t the temple and things seemed really great, that this might happen. But before long, it, it dissolves into civil war and ultimately into captivity. And a thousand years go by, and that promise hasn't seemed to really been fulfilled after all, right? And so people in Zechariah's time started to ask some questions. What's going on here? Why is it taking so long? And they started to come up with all kinds of reasons why God might be taking so long. They were searching for solutions to this question, why it's taking so long. And not only were they searching for solutions, but they started to think, maybe there's some things that we need to do that will help God usher this whole thing along. And so there was a whole group of people that thought, you know what, the answer, the solution that we're looking for has got to be a political solution. A, a group of people that, that were looking for a political solution were people that you wouldn't call the Herodians. The Herodians had this idea, if we could just get the right a system of government in, if we could just kind of partner with the Romans in just the right, right way, then maybe God would at last uh, keep his word and send this promised Messiah. There was another group who was just the opposite. They said the solution's not going to be a political solution. It's going to be this nationalistic solution. That what we need to do is throw the Romans out and have a pure Jewish nation. And those people were known as the zealots. And they would even be willing to go to violent extremes to push this national agenda. There was a whole other group, maybe the biggest group, who said, you know what, the problem's not national or political, it's this moral problem. And God's given us this law, and we're not really keeping it. If we kept the law and all the details, and we kept it just 
perfectly, then maybe, maybe then God would have to send the Messiah. And a group of these people were known as the Pharisees. And these and other ideas kind of grew up in the shadow, the void of these people waiting for the Messiah to come. And not just those promises to Abraham and to David, but if you think of the very last words of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament. And in chapter four, the last chapter, um, he says this. He gives another promise. And he says, hey, but for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. What a beautiful promise that is. The son is going to rise and he's going to have healing in his wings. It's a promise of Messiah. And when that day comes, you're going to be so happy that you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. And I thought that is a really strange image Um, because I'm a city kid. I don't know what a well-fed calf and Malachi saying, this is it. This is the whole nation of Israel. When the sun starts to shine, they are just going crazy. They are so happy. And then you skip down another verse or two. In verse five, he says this. He says, see, I will send the prophet who? Elijah. I'm going to send the prophet Elijah to you. And before that great and dreadful day, when the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. And that's the end of the Old Testament. And what happens after Malachi's prophecy? Nothing. In fact, maybe worse than nothing because God actually goes silent for 400 years. There's not another prophet after Malachi for another 400 years, which brings us to the time of Zechariah. And and that is where uh, we are going to kind of close the curtain now on Act 1. And we're going to open the curtain up again on Act 2 of this little drama. Now, you can read this in, Act, or in Luke chapter 1. I encourage you to read uh, this scripture. But for time's sake, I'm going to just kind of tell you the story or hit some of the highlights. So Act 2 begins with Zechariah, who, as we said, is a priest, was one of about 15,000 priests um, in Israel at that time. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little less. It's hard to pinpoint the exact number. Um, but then let's just say he was one of about 15,000 priests, and he was from the, the line of Abijah. And they took turns going to the temple to take care of the responsibilities at the temple. And it came their turn to go. And so he was there with his guys to help take care of the temple. And they would cast lots every day to see who would go in and burn the incense. It's kind of like lighting the advent calendar, the advent candle, but, but even bigger than that. Um, and so they cast the lot and the lot fell to Zechariah. And what an honor and what a privilege that he gets to be the one priest to go in and light the incense. And not only was it an honor, but if you do the math, it's kind of like a once-in-a-lifetime deal. If there's 15,000 priests and there's only one a day that gets to do it and there's 365 days in a year, this was a very rare opportunity. So they would have had this sense that God was, was doing something for Zechariah and choosing him to go in. And he goes in and while he's lighting the incense in the temple, an angel appears to Zechariah. In fact, not just any angel, the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel says to Zechariah, he says such beautiful words. He says, Gabriel, or he says, Zechariah, God has heard your prayer. And some of us just need to hear that today, that God hears your prayer. Even when it feels silent and when it feels like nothing, God hears our prayers and he sees those things. And he says, Zechariah, God hears your prayer and your wife is going to become pregnant. 
And Zechariah is just shocked by this. And his first response is, I, I don't know, that, that doesn't seem right. Um, but he says, not only is she going to be pregnant, but you are going to have a child um, who's going to be special. And this is what it says about him. The, the angel Gabriel says, Zechariah, he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of who? Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And you're like, wait, where have I heard that before? It's the last words of the Old Testament. And now finally, finally, maybe they're, they're coming true in Zechariah's life. And yet here's this guy who has waited and prayed and studied and waited and prayed. And what is his first response to that? Doubt. He says, oh, Gabriel, I think you got the wrong guy. Maybe it's tomorrow's guy that you're looking for. But he says this. He says, I am very old. And then super diplomatically, he says, and my wife is well along in years, right? So he tries to lay it on kind of sweet there. But um, Zachariah says, nope, you are the right guy. But because of your doubt, you are going to be silent. You are going to be struck silent until the appointed time. And so when Zechariah comes out of the temple, um, everybody knows something is up because for one, he looks terrified um, and two, he can't speak anymore. So they realize that something significant has happened to him. And before long, miracles of miracles, uh, Elizabeth gets pregnant. Well, after Elizabeth is announced as pregnant, we're still in act two of our story, but while we're kind of on pins and needles, just waiting to see what's going to happen to this geriatric pregnancy, uh, Luke introduces another miraculous conception into the story. So he introduces kind of another little line into the story he's telling. And this time, Gabriel shows up to another person, not to an old man, but to a young teenage virgin. In this story, you know a lot better. He shows up to Mary. And he says, Mary, you are also going to conceive. And the Holy Spirit is going to come on you and overshadow you. And you will become pregnant. And your child will be called the Son of God. Mary, you're pregnant with the Son of God. And Gabriel's promise is this. He says, for no word from God will ever fail. It may feel like generations, it may feel like years and nothing has happened, but you need to see that scripture. No word from God will ever fail. He is at work even when we can't see it. Even in the silence, even in the waiting, God is still working. Well, that brings us to one of my favorite scenes in kind of the whole Christmas narrative. Because, uh, and I forgot to mention that uh, Elizabeth and Mary are relatives. We don't know exactly what the relation is, but they are family. They are relatives. And so this, where we are now, that sets up kind of the, one of the great scene in the Christmas narrative. Because what you have is this pregnant virgin showing up at her cousin or her aunt's house, who's this pregnant old lady. And it says that when Mary shows up, the baby in Inside Elizabeth actually starts to leap with joy in the presence of Mary and the little baby that she's carrying. And who can tell me that 
life doesn't begin until a child's born. There's something sacred and something special that is happening there. Even the unborn John recognizes the greatness of the unborn Jesus. And there's like this embryonic worship that takes place as John leaps inside of his mother's womb. We read it like this in verse 41. It says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit filled with the Holy Spirit. And so in a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. Which brings us to the first lesson that we want to say about the spirit of Christmas. Because what happens is we see that the Holy Spirit comes on Elizabeth. And what does she do? The Holy Spirit inspires Elizabeth to take her eyes off herself and her struggles and to put them onto Jesus and others. And if you find yourself in a season of struggle, a season of waiting, a season of difficulty, the Holy Spirit wants to fill up your life wants to fill your life. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit will always do is take our eyes off ourself, which leads us usually to bitterness and negativity and depression. And he says, take your eyes off yourself and put them onto Jesus and put them on to other people. So Elizabeth's response is not jealousy. She could have easily said, you know what, I've been waiting my whole life to have the baby shower and now I've got to share it with this teenage kid. That's, that's not what she does. It's not uh, anger or it's not uh, selfishness. Her response is, blessed are you, Mary. Blessed is the child that you are carrying. You see, the Holy Spirit cause, uh, causes Elizabeth to see Jesus in someone else. Now, literally, Jesus was inside someone else. She sees Jesus in Mary. But what if this Christmas season, instead of focusing on ourselves, we began to see Jesus in other people? Do you see how dramatically that would change things? It would allow us to push back the bitterness, the worry, the sadness. And instead of focusing on me and my problems, I begin to focus on Jesus and seeing him in other people. And so here we are in the days of King Herod, the dark days of King Herod, in the waiting of 2,000 years of unfulfilled promises, God is keeping his word. God is keeping his word. And I love this picture because you've got a pregnant old lady and a pregnant teenage version. Neither of them really know what's going on, but I can just picture them hugging and crying because God was on the move, because God keeps his promise. And the curtain falls on the end of Act 2 and opens up again to Act Three. Act three begins like this. It's time for Elizabeth to give birth. And uh, as she gives birth uh, to the baby, but in this scene, uh, Zechariah, her husband, is still silent, just stone silent, can't say a word. And I was thinking a little bit, I, I know what some of you women might be thinking, it, it probably would have been a lot easier to deliver that child if your husband was silent, right? I think Janie probably would have said that. But Elizabeth has this baby, and it's a healthy baby boy. And it's the eighth day, and on the eighth day, that's when you named the baby. And so uh, the, the tradition was you would name this son after his father, especially if he's a righteous guy like Zechariah was. But Elizabeth brings the baby, and she says, I want to name him John. And everyone's like, John, you don't have anyone in your family named 
John, you know, I think we should name him after, you know, his father, especially he's sitting so quietly over there. I feel like we should just do Zechariah. But she says, no, I want his name to be John. And so now everybody's attention turns to Zechariah. For nine months, he's been silent. He's worked out this system to kind of write on a pad or write on a tablet. And so he takes his tablet and he takes his, his writing utensil and he begins to form some words. And everybody leans in to see what Zechariah is going to write. And he forms the words, his name is John. And you say, well, what's the big deal with that? Everybody there would have not only known the name John, but they would have known what the name John means. It means God is gracious. God is gracious. In the middle of all of this stuff comes the grace and kindness of God. And I think if there is one thing that some of us need to take away from this message today is the name John. God is gracious in the middle of your stuff, even when you can't see it. God sees you. God is there. And God is gracious. And so they name him John. And, and, and right away it says, immediately a Zachariah can speak and his tongue is loosed. And for nine months he's been silent. And so everybody wonders, what's this guy going to say? What are his first words going to be? And it says in the same way that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit earlier, this time Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he begins to speak this kind of psalm of praise. And, and it's not only one of the more beautiful Christmas songs, but it's one of the more beautiful songs in all of the New Testament and really in all of the the Bible. If you have a Catholic background, you may have heard this song called before the Benedictus, which is the first word in the psalm. But in verse 67, it says, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, and this is what it says. He says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David just like the Davidic covenant promised would happen. As he said through the holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to do what? Remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, just like he promised in Abraham's covenant to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in the holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then the proud papa turns his attention to, to his little son, uh, John, who's be John the, the Baptist. And he says, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Oh yeah, where have I heard that one before? Malachi chapter 4, the last words of the Old Testament. And he will shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Well, there is so much in there, more than we have time to really get into today. But what I want to do in just our remaining couple minutes together is I want to draw our attention to really the heart of Zechariah's message. Because perhaps the main theme of Zechariah's song, especially when you view it in the context of this story, is this. The solution that you're looking for is not a political one. The solution that you're looking for is not a national one. The solution that we needed was not even a moral one. It's not that we weren't keeping the law good enough. 
the solution that we need is a spiritual one. It's a spiritual one. In fact, look at the language that Zechariah uses. Let me just run through this real quick. In verse 68, he talks about redemption that we need, the the, the hope that would come through redemption. In verse 69, as well as 71 and 77, he mentions salvation, the salvation that would come through Jesus. In verse 73, he talks about a mercy. Mercy means that we don't get the punishment that we deserve. In fact, even more than that, in verse 78, He talks about his tender mercy, God's tender mercy. Verse 77, he speaks of the forgiveness of sins that was so desperately needed. And in verse 79, he says that the result of all these things would be peace. And if you read through that and you see some of those things, what you see are the same themes of Jesus's ministry and his life. Because here's the deal. There are a lot of problems in the world. There is a lot of darkness in the world. There are a lot of of, of difficult things that as God's people, we need to do our best to step into that suffering and to address it whenever we can. But the greatest need that every person has is spiritual. It's what the Bible refers to as a sin problem. This thing that keeps us away from experiencing God's best for us. The author Max Lucado, writing about this passage, says this. He says, the sinful nature is our struggle. The sinful nature is the stubborn, self-centered attitude that says, my way or the highway. We've all got this thing that says it's all about self, self-pleasing, promoting self, preserving self. Sin is selfish. And I love this line. He says, I have a sin nature. So do you. Merry Christmas. And here's the deal. When the Holy Spirit is at work in our life, if you want to say it like this, when the the true Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christmas is at work in our life, one of the things that the Bible tells us is it will convict us of sin. It will cause us to look at ourselves in light of God's plan for us, and it'll cause us to recognize the sin or the darkness inside of us. That's that's one of the things we've been talking about, the Holy Spirit, that he does all all year long. He convicts us of sin. And he convicts us not only of sin, but he convicts us of the understanding that the answer to that sin is not something from within us. It's that we need a Savior, which is what Zechariah is all about. The Savior's come in Jesus Christ. I heard just kind of a a great reminder of this idea that um, has really stuck with me for a little over a month now, and and, um, it was while I was on sabbatical, and I had an opportunity to go have lunch with another pastor who pastors a church in Stockton, and it's a big growing church, lots of great things, and and so I was really eager to to kind of spend that time and hear about uh, all the great things that his church is doing, and so we were having lunch together, and uh, as we were talking, I asked him the question, I said, hey, what's what's the biggest challenge that your church faces? This day, these days? What's the you know, biggest problem that you face? And I think sometimes pastors like that question or everybody likes that question because it gives them a chance to deflect off themselves and point the finger at someone else, right? You could say, well, it's you know, my board's problem or the staff's problem or it's the building or the budget, whatever it is, you can blame it on someone else. And so I asked him this question, what's the biggest problem that, that your church is facing these days? And he thought about it. He got silent for a while. And Then he thought about it a little more. For a couple minutes, he just sat and thought about it. So he wasn't just giving me some pat answer. But when he finally spoke, he said this, you know, I think the biggest problem is me. The problem that we're facing is in me. And this was not him confessing any big sin or any big scandal, but this was just him saying, this is not about blaming anybody else. This is looking that inside of me, even someone who's following Christ, even someone who's doing these great things, 
has this sin that's keeping me from really experiencing all that God has for me. And when we look at the problem in the world, the answer is me. Because while this world has a great deal of darkness, inside every heart is also darkness. Max Lucado finishes this statement like this. He says, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And that's what it describes. But here is the good news. Into the darkness of the world and into the darkness of our hearts comes the light of Christ. In fact, the light of Christ has come. In fact, as we turn now to a time of of communion together, I want to draw your attention to just one little phrase. It was in the book of Malachi, and it's also in in Zechariah's song. And it's in verse uh, 76, and uh, Zechariah says this. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which what? The rising sun will come to us from heaven. And the idea is that the Messiah is going to come like the rising of the sun. What a beautiful thing that is. And I don't know about you, but I love the sunrise. There is nothing more hopeful. There is nothing more beautiful. I saw the sunrise this morning. I thought of this verse. But as I think about the Messiah coming and I think about the grace of God compared to the rising of the sun, I have a question for you. Especially if you like the sunrise or you like the sun. What is your part in causing the sun to rise? What part do you play in that? Yeah, we don't. We don't. That's 100% God's work. What do we do with the sun? We step into its light. We bask in it. We let it light our paths. We, we get healed from it. We find life in it. And the same is true in the promise of Christ that we're celebrating through communion. The message is God is gracious. You see, all those old covenants that they were focused on had this component that they had to do things just right. And if they did all these things just right, then somehow they would kind of earn God's favor and God would have to give them salvation or these kind of things. And, and, and Jesus comes, and one of the most radical things that Jesus says in all of the radical things he says is, I come to give you a new covenant The new covenant is in my blood. In the past, you had to offer a sacrifice to receive the forgiveness. Now, once and for all, I lay down my life as a sacrifice. Your job is not to cause the rising of the sun. Your job is to step into the light of it. And he offers us that invitation even today. So at the end of Jesus' life, of course, he's born as a baby. He lives a sinless life. But at the very end of his life, he gathers together with his disciples. And that's where he famously explains this. And he takes bread and he breaks it. And he says, this bread represents my body that is to be broken on the cross for you. And then he takes the cup and he says, this represents my blood that's going to be poured out for you. That's the blood of this new covenant, not by your works, but by the gracious hand of God, you can be in relationship with him. And he says, whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me. And so just in our remaining few minutes together, we're going to celebrate communion as the church family gathered here together. And we invite you to be a part of that. Let me just say, I say this often, but um, here at First Baptist, we celebrate an open communion. You don't need to be a member of this church to, to take communion. But what we see in Scripture is that it is something for those that have placed their trust in Jesus Christ and are followers of Jesus. And the only reason I bring that up today is if you're like, hey, I'm not sure that's me, that's not for me to push you away. That's me inviting you in. Because even today, you can receive the gracious gift of God and step into the light by faith. There's no exact prayer, but something along the lines of Jesus, 
come into my life. I need the forgiveness of sin. I know the problem is in me, and I know the answer is in you. Come into my life, and you begin that relationship with God. And all across this room, there are people that have done that exact thing. But today, if you've never done that, today's the day of salvation. Why would you wait for that?